0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Fort St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The 70 Weeks of Daniel. Amen. Well, if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, you know that the Bible is filled with very emotional stories. Now, one passage in particular that is absolutely packed with emotion. One passage in particular that can be described as a a roller coaster of emotion is Luke 19. Luke 19 tells the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And so the emotions involved in the triumphal entry It's like a roller coaster. It goes from great glee right down to great grief, from this joyous festivity all the way down to this immense sorrow. Now, of course, the reason that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on his triumphal entry was in order to officially present himself as the Messiah of Israel. That's why he came in. And so it all started with joyful festivity as the Lord rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and a big multitude of people were cheering his name. They were cheering him on as he was riding into Jerusalem. Some of you guys are new to the Bible and you might say, you know, donkey, why a donkey? Why not a big white stallion? Well, that's gonna be the second coming, a big white horse. But the reason Jesus picked a donkey was to fulfill an ancient prophecy Found way back in Zechariah 9-9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your, what's the word? King, King. that's the Messiah. Behold your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a what? A donkey, a colt the fall of a donkey. So way back in the sixth century BC, 500 plus years before Jesus walked the earth, God told Israel through his prophet (laughs) Zechariah that Messiah is coming and one of the ways that you'll be able to figure out who the Messiah is is he's gonna ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and I want you to, first word, rejoice. And man, rejoice they did. We're going to pick it up today in Luke 19, verse 37. It says, then as he, Jesus, was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, John says it was a great multitude, so lots of people, the whole multitude of the disciples began to, what's the word? Rejoice Rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, John adds a little bit uh, to what Luke left out. John tells us that the people had palm tree branches. They went out and cut down palm tree branches and they either laid them on the road as Jesus is coming on the donkey or they waved them or maybe both but the people, it was a, 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 it was a party. They were rejoicing, they were praising. They saw him coming they're like, look, look, there he is, he's riding on the donkey just like Zechariah said he would. Hey, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were praising and shouting with a loud voice for all, it says, all the works that they seen, that they had seen. And so, man, we've seen him give sight to the blind. He's given the ability to hear to deaf people, the ability to walk, you know, to to cripple people, uh, smooth skin to lepers. We've seen him feed thousands of people with just a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. We've seen him calm storms, walk on the water. We've even seen him raise the dead. And so they're like, Praise the Lord, Hosanna, you know, save now. Blessed is the King who comes in the name. They were excited, by the way. We could use some more excitement here in this church on Sunday mornings during worship. I know you don't always feel like it. I know on Sunday mornings you kind of sleep in and you come in and you don't feel like it. Well, here's the thing. Do you think Jesus felt like dying on the cross for our sins? No, he didn't feel like it, but he did it anyway because it's the right thing to do. And so when we come as the ecclesia, the, the called out ones, the church on the first day of the week, we come into this worship center, man, We should not, whether we feel like it or not, man, we should praise the Lord and worship Him and thank God for all the mighty works that we've seen Him do, both in the Word of God and in our own lives. And so there's great festivity here in Luke 19 until the party got crashed. (laughs) Look at verse 39. It says, And some of the Pharisees called to Him from the crowd, and they said, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. How sad that the Pharisees, I've called them before, the the party poopers. Don't you love these guys? The religious self-critics. They're the guys that come into the back of the church, they kind of sit in the back with their arms crossed, and and they're they're not there with the right heart. They're there to pick apart and criticize everything that is sung or said. It's a self-righteous attitude. It's a religious attitude. It's a critical attitude. It was these religious people that, that came and crashed this party and they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, hey, Jesus, don't you realize what these people are doing? They're quoting Psalm 118. They're calling you the Messiah. They're calling you the King. Tell them to shut Now, how did Jesus respond to these critics, these Pharisees? Did he say, yeah, guys, you're right. Hey, everybody. Hey, thanks for coming, but I'm not really the Messiah. And so, hey, you know, see you later. You can go home now. Is that what Jesus said? Look at verse 41. But he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the what? The stones, the rocks would immediately cry out. Man, I just, you know, sometimes when I try to make the Bible come alive, I try to vision it in my mind and make it come real, right? And I just wish it didn't happen this way. But I just wish that they all would have stopped praising Jesus just for 30 seconds. Because if they all would have stopped praising Jesus for 30 seconds, the rocks would have started shouting out and praising. Can you imagine the Pharisees then? Can you imagine the Pharisee with his foot on a rock, and all of a sudden the rock goes, Hosanna! He's like, what in the world? And another rock says, praise the Lord! And another rock says, amen, or whatever. That's what would've happened if they would've stopped praising the Lord. The rocks would've cried out. And sometimes on Sunday mornings around some churches, the rocks are getting ready to cry out because it's dead formalistic religion. It's nothing to do with a heartfelt praise of the Lord. It's all about just going through some type of a format in order to pat yourself on the back and say, I want to church today. Well, that's not the kind of worship that the Lord wants at all. The triumphal entry started and it was a mood of joyous festivity and then everything changed. Look now at verse 41. Now as Jesus drew near he saw the city and he did what over it he wept everything's changing now from joyous festivity to immense sorrow right here that word wept by the way it literally means to bewail it means in other words that Jesus was crying so hard he was sobbing okay and so Picture the scene. there's Jesus on the donkey, winding around the western slope of the Mount of Olives. He comes around the corner. There's a panoramic view of Jerusalem and the temple. He's looking across the Kidron Valley. Everybody's screaming and shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they look over at Jesus, and he's shaking. He's crying so hard. And no doubt, right then, everything starts toning down, and people start wondering, why is he crying What's going on? Well, let's find out what's going on. What does Jesus say in verse 42? He says, now he's speaking prophetically over the city of Jerusalem. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surrounds you and close you in on every side and level you, verse 44, and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so right now, Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, which by the way, would soon take place. In less than 40 years, after Jesus uttered these words in AD 70, exactly what he said in verses 42 through 44 came to pass. By the way, it's just one of hundreds of reasons why, if you're still on the fence about Jesus, you need to bow your head and heart to the Lord and receive him as your Messiah. Because he predicted the future and it always happened exactly the way he said it was going to happen. So in AD 66, it's called the Great Revolt. The Jews finally had it up to here with Rome, so they rebelled against the Roman Empire. They took back Jerusalem. Caesar's like, this is not going to happen on my watch. So he sends General Titus and the Roman army, and they fight their way all the way to Jerusalem. Now we fast forward all the way to AD 70, and there's the Roman army. If you're standing in Jerusalem and you're looking out over the walls, in every direction that you look, you see... All these Roman soldiers and General Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem, listen, for 143 days. That's a long time. When the Roman army besieged the city, what they would do is they would cut off the supply lines. No food in, no food out. They would dig a trench around the city. They would build these towers. They would build these great catapults that would hurl huge rocks at the wall. They would set fires, right, in order to try to break down the walls and get into the city. Well, when you're cut off from civilization for 143 days, you know what happens eventually? Famine. And that's exactly what happened to the people within the city of Jerusalem. The Jews um, experienced famine, which led some of the Jews to actually begin to eat the dead, This is not biblical history, this is secular history. You can Google it and read it later on. They actually gave in to cannibalism. Others tried to escape the city by jumping over the wall at night, but of course the Roman army captured them and then they crucified these people. So the next day, the Jews in the city would look out and they would see all the crosses of the Jews that tried to escape Rome as Titus the general surrounded the city. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, described the horror that took place within the walls of Jerusalem. And so I'm quoting now from Josephus. The lanes of the city were full of dead bodies, the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine, and they fell down dead wherever their misery seized them. For a time, the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that within the city gates, they had to cast them down from the wall in the valleys beneath. When General Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw these trenches filled with dead bodies, he gave a groan, and spreading out his hands to heave, he called God to witness that this was not his doing. After six hundred and sixty thousand Jews died on that day, the Romans took back Jerusalem, and they burnt down the temple. Exactly what Jesus says in verse forty-two. He says, "If you and now with pen in hand, ladies and gentlemen, if you had known, even you, especially in this, please circle your day." He's riding into Jerusalem. He's presenting himself as. Israel's Messiah, some people get it. They're saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Most don't, most reject him. And so if you, he's crying, he's sobbing. He says, if you had only known in this your day the things that make for your peace, now they're hidden from your eyes. Now, Now why did all this happen in AD 70? Look at the very end of verse 44. He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So if you're taking notes, here's your next point. The destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, the scattering of the Jews across the world occurred because they missed the day of their visitation. Their Messiah presented himself to them exactly like the 6th century bc prophet said he would and they said thanks but no thanks and so it did not end well and some of you who are here today and you're still on the fence about the lord jesus you still haven't committed your life to jesus christ you're saying in essence to god thanks but no thanks let me tell you something it's not going to end well with you it never ends well It didn't end well for Jerusalem. In AD 70, just 40 years after Jesus said what he said, they experienced their destruction and thousands of them had to retransplant all over the world. Now, what most people in the world, obviously, and even most Christians, sadly, don't realize is that the special day of Jesus presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah that that was also prophesied, not just in Zechariah 9.9, it was prophesied also in Daniel chapter 9. Okay, so we're done in Luke 19. I want you to turn to the left, and I want you please to go to Daniel chapter 9 at this time. Daniel chapter 9. As you're turning to the left in your Bible, just know that you're going back in time over 500 years. You're going from the first century AD, the time of Jesus, all the way back to the 6th century BC, which is the time of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Now, in order for this to make any sense, i got to give you a little bit of background on where we are in our Bibles, okay? So, right now, what is the specific year in the 6th century BC? Well, the way that you can find that out is by looking at verse 1 of Daniel 9. It's the time of Darius the Mede. You guys see that in verse 1? Okay, so historians put that around 538 B.C. So if you don't mind marking in your Bible, you may want to write 538 B.C. next to verse 1 so you know where we are as far as the time frame of the Scriptures. About or almost 70 years. Okay, so 538 B.C., Daniel chapter 9, about or almost 70 years prior to this, The Babylonian Empire came from the north, and they attacked Judah and Jerusalem. It started in 605 B.C. It came in three big waves. It ended in 586 B.C. with the destruction of of the temple um, that Solomon built. Okay. At that time, thousands of Jews were killed. By the way, I'm having my devotions in Jeremiah, chapter after chapter after chapter, Jeremiah is warning them that a great army is coming from the north, Judah, and they're going to attack you and they're going to destroy you, and of course, everything Jeremiah said came true too. And so sure enough, the Babylonians came down, they killed thousands of Jews, and they deported many Jews back up to Babylon to be their slaves. Now. They were also looking for Judah's best and brightest, the Jews' best and brightest, in order to eventually serve in the king's court. Anybody remember the the name of the king of Babylon at that time? It was Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel, who at that time, back in um, 605 BC, he's just a teenager. But man, this, this kid is sharp. And so Daniel is chosen to be groomed in order to serve in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. Now, if you know anything about the book of Daniel and you know anything about Daniel, you know God's hand was on this young man. And as he grew, he continued to keep his eyes on the God of Israel, even though he was living in a foreign land, even though he was surrounded by the world and the flesh and the devil and demons. He kept his eyes on Yahweh God and God blessed him and took him to a place where he was a high government advisor for two world kingdoms, both the Babylonian and the Persian kingdoms. By the way, quick side note, man, if you guys, if you'll keep your eyes on Yahweh God, even as you're surrounded by a world that's falling apart, man, God's got such awesome plans for you. There's no no telling what God's going to do in your life. And that's what happened with Daniel. And so now we come to Daniel 9, and Daniel's an old man. He's like 86 years old. And he's there, he's been faithful to the Lord, and so the Lord is going to bless Daniel with with what I believe is the most amazing prophecy in the entire Bible. Okay, so let's look at it, Daniel 9, starting in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, Daniel said, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Do you see the heart that Daniel has? He's praying for the Jews, he's confessing his own sin, he's asking God for a revival. I pray that you guys would be doing the same, confessing your sin, praying for the people of poor St. Lucie and the surrounding area, praying for our church that we would experience a revival in this place. By the way, if you wanna go back and read the prayer later, it's all the way from verse four to 19. It's an amazing prayer. So while Daniel is praying and presenting, verse 20, his supplication before the Lord his God and for the holy mountain of his God, okay, verse 21. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, remember him from our Christmas series? The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering." So Daniel calls Gabriel the man Gabriel, but we know this guy was no ordinary man. We know he was no ordinary man because it just, we just read that Gabriel flew swiftly. Does anybody here know any men who can fly without machines, right? So this is an angel. It's the same angel over 500 years from now in the Bible It's gonna to appear to Mary which we covered last month. And so Gabriel appears to Daniel, right? And he says now in verse 22, he informed me and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth. And by the way, can you imagine God in heaven telling Gabriel, okay, I want you to give Daniel this amazing prophecy. And then Gabriel's like, yes, sir. And he flies from God's throne up in heaven all the way down to Daniel's home in Babylon And so he comes to Daniel and he says, oh, Daniel, I have now come, in verse 22, I have now come forth to give you skill to, what's the word? Understand. Understand. Your attention, please, for just a second. He says, I want you to understand. You know what drives me crazy as a pastor? Is that whenever I preach on prophecy or end times, A lot of people, their eyes glaze over and they think, I can't understand this, and then they begin to think about lunch and Olive Garden. (laughs) And also, another thing that drives me crazy is that a lot of churches would never, ever, ever even approach prophecy or end times teaching because they're like, it's too hard to understand. It's not. I understand that you guys are grown adults, educated. You love the Lord. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So why can't you guys understand this stuff? Right? I'm so glad one guy said amen back there. (laughs) You can understand this. You just got to stick with it. Okay? And so, oh, Daniel, I have come forth to give you skill to understand, verse 23, at the beginning of your supplication, your prayer, back in verse 4, the command went out. God said, "Go." So I, I came to tell you, for you're greatly beloved. I love that. Daniel, God loves you." Therefore, consider the matter, and under there's that word again, understand the vision. God wants us to understand this vision. He wants us to understand this prophecy. And so Gabriel tells Daniel, "God loves you, man. He's heard your prayers. He wants you to see into the future. So now we're going to start this, again, I believe most amazing prophecy in the entire Bible, starting in verse 24. He says, 70 weeks. You want to underline weeks there. 70 weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, your people, and your holy city. Okay, so who were Daniel's People. They were called the what? The Jews, Israel. What was Daniel's holy city? It's called what? It's called Jerusalem. Still, still exists over there. By the way, it's like on the front page every day of the news. The Jews were his people. Jerusalem was the holy city. What's the period of time that's been determined for the Jews and for Jerusalem? Verse 24, 70 weeks. Seventy weeks, okay. And so, if you're taking notes, what does the Hebrew word week mean? There's the transliteration. It kinda looks like Shabua, but it's actually pronounced Shabueh in the Hebrew, and it simply means a unit of seven. Okay, so you gotta get this in order to understand the rest of the prophecy. It just means seven. Now, does it mean seven days? The answer is no. Let me, let me quote uh, David Guzik, one of my favorite commentators. He's a, a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor in California. And by the way, you can find David on blueletterbible.com um, when you have your devotions. But he says, and I quote about this word, there is almost universal agreement among Bible scholars and commentators that this word refers to 70 sets of seven years or weeks of years in ancient Hebrew, the word weeks simply refers to a unit of seven. The Hebrew word is often um, used for days, but it also may be used for years, okay? So in this context, it's used as seven periods of seven years, okay? So here's the literal translation of Daniel 9:24. if you're taking notes. Seventy seven-year periods are determined for your people, That's the Jews. And your holy city, that's Jerusalem. Does it make sense so far, you guys? All right, let's let's look at verse 24. What's gonna happen by the end of these 77-year periods? He says in the middle of verse 24, to finish transgression. These are like mind-blowing statements here. To finish transgression, you mean no more sin? To make an end of sins? To make reconciliation for iniquity? Look at this. To bring in everlasting righteousness. By the way, does anyone think everlasting righteousness has come already? (laughs) Not even close. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most high or the most holy, the the Messiah there. And so what what Gabriel is saying to Daniel is, hey, in 77-year periods, history as we know it will end. In 77-year periods, Messiah is coming back to the earth. He's going to be anointed. He's going to usher in everlasting righteousness. So how is this all going to go down? Look at verse 25. Know therefore and, what's the word? Understand, okay, come on. We can do this, right? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command, you want to underline the word command because that's the trigger how all this will start. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until, please underline the word, Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks, okay, in the weeks, Shavuot, seven year periods, so there'll be seven seven year periods and 62 seven year periods. The street will be built again and I love this, the what? The wall, that's so important. I hope everyone, or at least those of you who know your Bible are thinking Nehemiah right now. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. All right, so let's regroup. Gabriel flies down to Daniel. He says, Daniel, the Messiah's coming. Right, the Jews have been praying for him for so long. He's coming. When's he gonna come? All right. In the future, a command's going to go forth for Jerusalem to be rebuilt and restored. It's going to be a troublesome time in the history of Jerusalem, but sure enough, they're going to rebuild the city, they're going to rebuild the walls, they're going to redo the streets. It's all going to happen, the trigger is going to happen when a command goes forth. And then from that command until, look, 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 Messiah comes there's gonna be seven seven seven-year periods and 62 seven-year periods. Okay, what's seven plus 62? Help me out. What's seven plus 62? Help me out. (laughs) Everybody's like, I don't wanna say anything out loud because I might be wrong. (laughs) 69, right? Yeah, 69. So from the time of a command to restore Jerusalem until Messiah comes to the earth, there's going to be 69 seven-year periods. Now, what's a year? Don't use the Julian calendar. You're going to mess it all up. I've seen people do this. It's, they use 365 days, and they, they put in leap year, all this stuff. It's, I don't, it's not that hard. I don't think it's that hard. You just got to use the calendar in Daniel's day. That was the 360-day calendar. And so, there's going to be 69 seven-year periods. Okay, help me out. What's 69 times seven? 483. Okay, so 483 years using the Jewish 360-day calendar. How many days are in 483 years using the Jewish calendar of 360 days? I'll help you out on that one. There's no way anybody's going to get this unless you have a a word for today Bible and it's right there on your page. It's 173,880 days, and that leads you to your next point if you're taking notes. All right. So 173,880 days after the command to restore Jerusalem, Messiah would come. This is crazy right there in your Bibles, the same Bible that's been available to all humanity for hundreds of years, it's right there. People have no clue. Okay, so it all depends on that command. When in history was a command given for Jerusalem to be restored and rebuilt? Okay, so what we're doing now, stay with me here, uh, what we're doing now is we're leaving 538 BC, the time of Daniel and Gabriel's conversation, and we're going forward in time all the way to 445 BC. We're now, you don't have to turn there, but right right now we're in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah Nehemiah's a patriotic Jew. It used to be the Babylonians were the premier world power. Now Persia defeated Babylon. Persia's the premier world power in 445 BC. The king, his name is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is sitting on his throne ruling over the world. He has a cupbearer. The cupbearer's name is Nehemiah. You guys know what a cupbearer is, right? The guy who's got to drink the wine before the king in case someone's trying to poison the king, the cupbearer dies first. Okay, how would you like to have that job? And so, Nehemiah is the cupbearer for the king, and he gets a visit from some of his brothers from Jerusalem they go from Jerusalem all the way up to Persia, modern-day Iran, and they go see Nehemiah and they said, Nehemiah, we got some bad news. The bad news is that Jerusalem, the city we love, it's a mess. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. The people are living in distress. The anim- our enemies are surrounding us. And right then, God got a hold of Nehemiah's heart. Now, check this out. Nehemiah had been living what many of us would call a cush life. <laughs> Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. I mean I mean, yeah, the, the risk you have to have pretty good insurance, right? But, but it's, a, it's an easy job. There's no work involved. You're just drinking wine all day. Yeah, you can drink that one. Yeah, you can drink that one, right? And so he's got a cush job, an easy job. He's living in luxury in the palace of King Artaxerxes and God gets a hold of his heart and says, Nehemiah, I want you to do something. I want to use you to fix the problem in Jerusalem. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, God has got a call on some of your lives and you're living an easy life. You're not really following Jesus, maybe half-heartedly, but not fully. And you're living this comfortable life and you're just living day by day. You're going to work, making your money, coming home, going to work, making your money, coming home, and there's a problem somewhere, and God wants to use you to fix the problem. But the question is, will you be able to muster up enough courage like Nehemiah and go and follow God's call in your life? And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He mustered up the courage, and he went before the king, Artaxerxes. He knew he could lose his head, and yet he said, you know what? My life doesn't matter. What's going on in Jerusalem matters more. King, would you please give me a permission to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls? You can read about that later in Nehemiah chapter 2. And there's Artaxerxes sitting on the throne of Persia. And there's Nehemiah, right, praying the, under his breath, God, please don't let me die today, right? And Artaxerxes says, go, go. Now look at verse 25 again in Daniel 9. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the what? The command, there it is right there. Nehemiah chapter two, 445 BC, Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah, go. And that's the trigger, that's the trigger. Now, for those of you guys who wanna go deeper into this study, because I only have 45 minutes, I want to recommend a book for you. It's called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. Okay, Sir Robert Anderson um, lived at the turn of the 20th century in England, London, or that area. He, was, he became famous as an investigator for Scotland Yard. And so he was, he was around back when Jack the Ripper was doing all of his evil deeds. And so Sir Robert Anderson took his investigative skills because he loved the Bible, and he turned it to biblical prophecy. And he wrote this book, okay? So, you can get it on Kindle for 99 cents in your mobile device, or you can buy the paperback. I think it's like five bucks. But anyway, that'll help you go deeper into the study that we don't have time to go deeper into. But anyway, uh, Sir Robert Anderson calculated the date of Artaxerxes' command of Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem as March 14th 445 B.C., okay? So Gabriel the angel tells Daniel the prophet, in the future there's going to be a command. After that command, there's going to be 173,880 days, and then Messiah is going to come. If you're taking notes, here's the timeline. March 14th, 445 B.C., you add the 483 years using the Jewish calendar of 360 days, You break it down to 173,880 days. You come to April 6, AD 32. Guess who came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on April 6, AD 32? You guys shout out his name. Jesus. 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 Who's the Messiah? Prophesied back in the 6th century BC. The Bible tells us the very day he's going to come. And yet most of our world lies in darkness. It's so sad. It's all right here. This is why we make such a big deal about the Bible here at Calvary. It's because, man, this Bible is gold. This Bible's amazing. When, listen, when you get this right, this kind of takes care of itself. Sometimes people say, Pastor Mike, why don't you do all these series on relationships and and marriage and and, and the series about, you know, being more of a success in your life and how to to, uh, do well in your career. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that. But here's what I know. If I will just teach the Bible and all of us will get this right, this takes care of itself. Takes care of itself. And so... I want to encourage you to get a study Bible so when you're reading and it doesn't make sense, you can have a whole bunch of really good, solid commentary on the Bible to help you understand. Now, I have lots of study Bibles. This one is the word for today. Uh, Chuck Smith uh, did this before he passed away. By the way, we have most of Chuck Smith's books now available in the foyer for a, a donation if you guys want to look at that on different topics of life. But let me read, um, and by the way, another great study Bible that I use is Ryrie, R-Y-R-I-E. But let me read to you from Chuck Smith's notes right here. He says, and I quote, According to the calculations of Sir Robert Anderson and others, accounting for the different calendars, 173,880 days, from the Declaration of Artaxerxes calculates to April 6, AD 32, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, on a donkey. Okay, so why did they miss it? Why did the Pharisees stand there in the middle of the party and say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Tell them to stop saying that you're the Messiah. Tell them to stop saying you're the king. Tell them to stop getting all so excited and saying, praise the Lord, Hosanna, and all this stuff. Why'd they miss it? Listen, the leaders of Israel were educated. All they had to do was go over and grab the scroll of Daniel. They had it. They didn't have a leather-bound Bible like we do, but they had a scroll. They could have opened up the scroll and, and seen, right? Okay, so from the command to restore Jerusalem, hey, when did that take place? 445 B.C., Artaxerxes, okay. Okay, so start counting until Messiah the Prince. There's 69 seven-year periods. Hey, let's break that out. What is the time frame for Messiah to come um, right now? Right now! Who's been doing signs and wonders? Who's been giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, uh, deaf and, and helping lame people walk again? Jesus! And yet they hardened their hearts out of jealousy because he was taking the crowd away from them. They hardened their hearts because of their their pride. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. And they missed their Messiah and Jesus wept. He said, if you had only known in this your day the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Now, how many of you guys believe God is sovereign? Yes or no? You think think any of this took God by surprise? You think he he was surprised? The Jews just rejected my son. You think he was surprised? No. In fact, he wrote about it in the 6th century B.C. (laughs) Look at verse 26. He says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be, what's the next two words? Cut off, (laughs) but not for himself. Wow. (laughs) Wow. After the 69, seven-year periods, Messiah is going to be cut off. Ladies and gentlemen, do you guys know what the words cut off means? Killed. 6th century B.C., if you're taking notes, Daniel foretold the Messiah would die. Listen, this was foreordained before God created the world. He knew we would need a Savior. And so it was always planned for Jesus to come. And to die for the sins of the world. He was cut off. Did you see that in verse 26? But not for himself. He didn't have to die for himself. He never sinned. He was perfect. So why did he die? Why was he cut off? For us. Because you sinned, and I sinned, and you sinned some more, and I sinned some more. We have this problem, we're we're sinners. And the wages of sin, help me out, is death. death. That's why he was cut off, but not for himself. Why, because he loves us. God is madly in love with us, and even though we've offended him, he says, I I still want to make it right. So I'll send my son, he'll be cut off for all the people of the world, so that I can be reconciled with sinners. What an amazing God we serve. No other God in any other religion is anywhere close to that. Nowhere even close to that. It reminds me of an eighth century prophecy in Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, cat of nine tails, we are healed. I just feel like right now we should just, man, thank Jesus for dying for us right now. Let Him know. Let Him know. Amazing. And so look at the rest of the verse now. So after the 69, year periods, Messiah will be cut off or killed, but not for Himself. Look at verse 26. And the people of the Prince who is to come, okay, and so... Stay with me here. The prince who is to come in verse 26 is not Messiah, the prince in 25. And so we don't have time to explain all of it. But, you know, from Daniel, earlier in Daniel, this is the the Antichrist in the end times. Okay. So the people of the prince who is to come, the people of the Antichrist shall destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. Okay. So if it's not enough to tell us when Messiah is coming, if it's not enough to tell us Messiah is going to die for us, Now he gives us the prophecy that was fulfilled in A.D. 70. Jerusalem was destroyed along with the temple. It says in verse 26, the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And so who destroyed Jerusalem and burnt down the temple in A.D. 70? They're called the what? The Romans. Okay, so they're called the people of the Antichrist. That's why when the Antichrist comes in the future, he will lead a revised Roman Empire. That's why Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7 says, you want to know what the political uh, climate's going to be in the end times? It was told us back in 6th century BC. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, in the future, there will be 10 nations that federate. There'll be a 10-nation confederation, okay? That's what the end times political um, framework is going to look like, and one of the leaders of those 10 nations will be the Antichrist. You say, is he alive today? I don't know if he's alive today or not. I've always been persuaded that we live in the end times, but I've never been one to set dates. And so... The global power in the end times will consist of a confederation of ten nations. The Antichrist will be one of the leaders of those ten nations. He will be a great leader. He'll be fantastic. He'll be amazing. The whole world will be like, man, this guy is incredible. But he will be a self-centered egomaniac. And so now look at verse 24 again, all the way back to 24. He says, 70 weeks, 70 weeks. Okay, can I have your attention, please? We went through 69 weeks. What happened to the 70th week? What happened to the the final seven-year period? Look at verse 27. Then he, that's the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant, that's a peace treaty, with many, that's Israel and her neighbors who hate them, for, there it is, one, what's the word? Week, there's your 70th week. If you're taking notes, what is the 70th week? It's the tribulation. The worst period ever in the history of mankind is coming to a theater near you. It's gonna be horrible. I wish I could tell you that everything in the world's gonna get better and better and better. It's not, it'll get better when Jesus comes back. And so there will be 10 nations that rise up. One of the leaders of those 10 nations will be the Antichrist. He'll sign a treaty with Israel and her neighbors. That will begin the 70th week of the tribulation. And so there is a gap between the 69th week when Messiah came and presented himself to Israel and the 70th week, which we don't know when that will start in the future. Okay, that, that, that gap, by the way, has lasted for about 2,000 years. It's called by theologians the church age. It's because God's a God of grace. God so loves the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever, Jew or Gentile, believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. And so thank God for 2,000 years. Not millions, but B, billions of people have been born again and they're in heaven right now. Because of God's grace and His love. And so, did you notice in verse 27? He'll confirm a peace treaty for many with one week, but in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, halfway through the tribulation, He, the Antichrist, will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay, so the temple will be rebuilt. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, the abomination of desolation. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24. Paul talks about it in 2 Thessalonians 2. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And so here, here in conclusion, here's, here's what's going to happen, okay? Peace treaty signed, seven-year tribulation, 70th week of Daniel kicked off, Right? Church age is over, church age is over, rapture has occurred. God turns his attention from the church back to Israel. There's a seven year period. First three and a half are pretty bad, but not so bad. But in the middle of the three and a half years, all of a sudden, the Antichrist struts up on the temple mount, he breaks his peace treaty with Israel, he sits down in the temple and he declares, I am God. Second Thessalonians two, two and three. And then he begins to hurl blasphemies against the God of Israel. And Revelation thirteen five says at that point, that guy's got 42 months and then it's over. How long is 42 months? 12, 24, 36, three years and six months. It's the second half of the tribulation. But thank God after that 42 months, oh man, this is my favorite part of the message. After that's all said and done, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given the glory and the kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. End of story. We win. We win because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. As the worship team comes up and the ushers prepare for us to receive communion, I want us to turn our attention to one verse. We already talked about it. Sixth century B.C., Messiah will be killed, but not for himself. These elements that the elders and pastors are preparing right now for you, they represent that verse. They represent that Messiah would be killed, cut off, executed. The bread, if you're new to church and the Bible, represents his broken body. The juice cup represents his shed blood. Now, here's how we're going to do this because we're running late today, okay? In a moment, I'm going to pray and the ushers are going to dismiss you row by row to come up and grab the elements. What we ask you to do is don't take them up here, but take them back to your seat. Have a word of prayer. Spend some time with the Lord. And then... Receive the elements Jesus said do this in remembrance of me so here's our response time today it's to remember that Messiah was cut off for you he's your only hope when you take these elements you're saying to God you are my only hope there's no good work I can do to earn my way to heaven I rely on Jesus and him only One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.